0: I have been uh, blessed and enriched, encouraged and strengthened over the past month to receive the word from my my favorite preacher. And I think that uh, Pastor Garrett has just done a great job of encouraging us uh, and challenging us. And I hope you feel the same way. By the same token, I really like to preach. (laughs) Buckle up, I got about three hours worth here today. (laughs) some things that have been on unm- my... No, that's not true. That's not true. I'm going to do my best. I did tell you, though, a couple of weeks before Christmas that we had been making our way through the book of Colossians. We were going to put a bookmark in the book of Colossians. We were partway into chapter two. We were going to have Christmas. Garrett was going to preach through the month of January. And then in February, I would come out and we would dust that bookmark off and open up and pick up right where we left off. That's what we're doing here today. So let me just kind of reboot or remind you where we've been. book of Colossians is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a, a church gathering in the city of Colossae, a church that he had never met. Now this letter appears in your Bible as the book of Colossians. I had taken the liberty of, of uh, printing it out without verse numbers, without chapter numbers, without footnotes, just a letter. Just exactly as the Colossians would have received it. Uh, if you would like to pick a copy of that up, it's in the in the rack on the information table in the back. You can pick it up and read it as we go through this journey together just as a letter. I think that's, a for me, a helpful way of digesting these portions of Scripture. But it wasn't a letter that Paul wrote to this church. It was a church that he had never met, a church that had received the gospel by way of a colleague of Paul's, and they had received the gospel with great joy great enthusiasm they had become Christians and now they were worshiping together but they had reached that point early in their faith when they realized wow we got some work to do we've got some growing up to do there's things that need to be done if we are going to continue to grow in our faith and Paul's letter was meant to show them you're right and here's how that happens And so far, just by way of review, here's what we've heard Paul tell the Colossian Christians. He said, the first thing I need you to know is that you're part of a great big tribe. I know this is all new to you, but you are part of something that God has been working around the world and throughout time, and you are not alone. You are not alone. You might feel alone. You might feel like you're the only one on your block or in your neighborhood or in your community that that has this experience with me, but you are not alone. You are part of a great big tribe. But you do feel different than a lot of your neighbors, and that's because you've become something different. That difference is marked by your understanding that Jesus is the ruler over all creation. You live a life where you're surrounded by human rulers and authorities. For the Colossians, it would have been the Roman Empire. But you have come to understand in a new way that Jesus is the source of all power, and he has all authority even over the earthly powers. And that's why in the church it all starts with Jesus. Everything we do is focused on Jesus. We recognize Jesus as the source of everything, so everything starts with Jesus. And we recognize that in the church, Jesus gives all access, there aren't different levels of access or relationship to God the Father. No, with Jesus, it's all good. You have equal access to the Father. You have equal access to the blessings of God. Jesus has given it all that you all might have it. Yes, that's good news. But Paul says, we also have to acknowledge that growing up involves suffering. There's pain. There's trial, there's obstacle, and you need to understand very quickly that not everything you hear is true. You're gonna hear things said about the gospel that aren't, good, that aren't true. You're gonna hear people try and twist and use it for their own benefit or their own reasons, and you need to be able to discern the difference between the truth and the lies that you'll hear in your journey of growing up. And the best way to do that, Paul says, is just prioritize your connection to Jesus. Jesus. Learn to understand his voice. Learn to hear his voice. Learn to recognize his words. Focus your life. Orient your life toward him in such a way that you'll know when somebody's not telling you the truth. That you'll understand that what you've heard is not what God wants to say to you. That's what Paul has said. And now we pick up. Right there, right where we left off just before Christmas, Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. And again, I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Paul writes this. When you came to Christ, you were circumcised, but not by a physical procedure. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision, the cutting away of your sinful nature. For you were buried with Christ when you were baptized. And with him, you were raised to new life because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. You were dead because of your sins and because of your sinful nature that had not yet been cut away. But then God made you alive with Christ for he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We receive, the, we receive what we have heard today as the words your Holy Spirit has given to us. We pray, Lord, that you would enlighten our understanding as we chew on this message today. Lord, that your word would be clear to each one of us. We thank you for this blessing in Jesus' name. Oftentimes when I preach, I read something from the Bible and then I explain or I try to explain what it means and I'll use a simile or a metaphor. I'll say this is like this or this reminds me of this circumstance as a way of trying to help us all understand what the word of God is saying. But in this particular passage of scripture, I don't have to do that because did you catch it? Paul gives us the metaphor. He says, here's what's going on and here's what it's like. I don't have to come up with an illustration because Paul has given it to us. He's given us the metaphor. He's saying that coming to Christ is like being circumcised. Not a pleasant thought. (laughs) Paul, I wish he had chosen a better metaphor for me to preach on this particular Sunday morning. This is a little awkward, isn't it? A little, a little uncomfortable, right? But this is what Paul says. Paul says, coming to Christ is like being circumcised. Now, the ancient Jews, as most of you probably know, used circumcision as a signifier that someone was truly Jewish, In their minds, that meant you were truly numbered among God's people. So if you were born as an ethnic Jew, a male, you would be circumcised very shortly after birth. But Judaism also had provisions for adult converts of other ethnicities. If there were folks from from foreign lands that said, I want to convert to Judaism as as my religious practice, there were provisions within Judaism by which they could become circumcised so that they could demonstrate that they were also part of, of God's people, which not surprisingly really hurt their conversion rate. Okay? There weren't a whole lot of people lining up for that. There weren't a lot of folks. And so by the time of Christ, there were also provisions for folks who were like, yeah, I want to say I'm Jewish, but I don't want to do that whole thing. Right? So they had like this whole other category for that. But this is what it was like. It was like, this is the signifier, this is the thing which shows, which demonstrates that you are among God's people. Now, because Jesus himself was ethnically Jewish, and most of his earliest followers were ethnically Jewish, and because the God that Jesus spoke of was Yahweh, the God of the Jews, there was a lot of discussion in the early church about whether or not you had to become Jewish in order to follow Jesus. Do you have to become Jewish? And behind that question, no doubt, for many people was, so do you have to, you know, in order to follow Jesus? Do you have to do that in order to follow Jesus? This almost certainly would have been on the minds of the believers in Colossae because many of them were ethnically Gentile. So this would have been kind of a big deal to them. Do we really need to go through Judaism in order to follow Christ? Do we have to become Jewish in order to have a real relationship with God? In essence, they were asking, do we need to be circumcised? And Paul's answer is clear. He's telling them, but you've already been circumcised. He's saying, you came to, you've came. you already, don't ask me if you need to be circumcised, you already were circumcised. Granted, not physically, perhaps, but you underwent a spiritual circumcision when you came to Jesus. And that's a way of Paul saying coming to Jesus is the only thing you need to do. It's the only thing you can do in order to have a real relationship with God. Now, I would hazard to guess that physical circumcision is not foremost on our minds in this culture when we consider our religious options. When we consider turning to Jesus and think about what it is to be a Christian, that's not really one of the things that tends to get in the way for most of us in this day and age, in this culture, in this society. But I think that there are plenty of other obstacles that we tend to put in the way. Can I really come to Jesus because of my past? Don't we have to address that first before I truly can have a relationship with God? What about my family? You know, us Martinsons have never been religious folks. Perhaps there's something that I need to do before Jesus will accept me. How about my personality? How many of us at one time or another have said, well, this is just the way I am. And sometimes we even get a little snarky about it, don't we? Well, God, you made me this way. If you don't like me, then that's your problem, not mine. There's all of these things that we tend to put in the way and say, I can't come to God because this other thing hasn't happened yet. But we need to hear what Paul told the Colossians. You don't realize when you came to Christ, it already happened. It already happened. So just as the ancient Jews believed that entering into God's family was made official through circumcision, which is the cutting away of part of our physical body. The New Testament tells us that Jesus cut away our sinful nature. Jesus cut away. He he performed a surgery, didn't he? He cut away our sinful nature. Jesus took us into the OR and he performed a sinful (laughs) naturectomy. That's what he did. It wasn't your body that needed to be cut. And by the way, don't sleep on this. It's not just for the man of the house anymore. In Christ, there are no limitations on who can be reconciled to God. Your past can't keep you out. Your ethnicity can't keep you out. Your gender can't keep you out. Your age can't keep you out. This relationship with God is meant for everyone. And it all happens as we meet Jesus. And so Paul has the audacity to write a letter to a bunch of Gentiles, young and old, from nations all over the place. Men and yes, women and say, y'all been circumcised. (laughs) Y'all been circumcised. Well, here's how he puts it slightly more formally in verse 11. He says, Christ performed a spiritual circumcision. He cut away the part of us that is inclined to sin. He surgically removed the portion of our spirit that, as the psalm writer said, I'm sorry, the hymn writer said, prone to wander. Wander away from the path that God has intended for us. Now, does that mean that once we meet Jesus, we're never going to sin again? We had a little conversation about this this last Tuesday night. I was privileged to join the men's Bible study and we were talking not about this text, but about this topic. Is that what that means? That once we come to Jesus, we're just never gonna sin again? And the guys kind of sheepishly put their hands up and said, no, no, that's definitely not what that means. It simply means that our tendency is different. Our proclivity is different As Paul puts it here, our nature is different. It's oriented toward him. Paul would write elsewhere in his second letter to the Corinthians, this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone and a new life has begun. Different. That's what he's saying, different. Our entire nature can change if the right part gets cut away. Now there are plenty of medical examples of this, right? If you're prone to collect uh, duct—I'm uh, sorry—stones in your bile duct, um, maybe we can fix that by cutting away your gallbladder. If you're prone to infection in your abdomen, maybe we can fix that by cutting away your appendix. If you're prone to hemorrhaging, maybe we can fix that by cutting away your spleen. Uh, in the early part of the 20th century, we thought that if you were prone to mental illness, maybe we could fix that by cutting away part of your brain. And so we, we experimented with lobotomy. And you know what we found out? We're not very good at it. (laughs) We found out we're not very good at it. Almost without exception, we did more harm than good. And you know why? Because while we discovered and we affirmed you can change a person's entire nature by cutting away a part of them, in this case, a part of their brain, the problem is that we weren't real good at predicting just exactly how you were going to change their nature by cutting away a part of their brain. The problem with lobotomy is we discovered that we just weren't good enough to know what to cut away and what to leave. Do you know God doesn't have that problem? The author of Hebrews chapter 4 writes to us For the word of God is sharper than the sharpest two edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. He's a really good surgeon, isn't he? And he doesn't make mistakes. Jesus knows how to cut away what needs to be cut away and how to leave what needs to be left. And it's important for us to truly understand why he cuts away our sinful nature. It's not because he's disappointed with you or just because he thinks sin is kind of icky. Those aren't the reasons that that Jesus cuts away our sinful nature. It's because he knows that sin causes death. He knows that sin causes death. Too many of us, I think, make the mistake of associating sin with this idea of disappointing God. And in this mindset, when I sin, God gets upset and he kind of folds his arms and taps his toe while he looks at me, right? He expected better of me and I let him down. And that way of thinking, if that's the way we think about sin, that causes us to hide from God because we are overwhelmed with shame and we are overwhelmed with fear. Do you remember the story of Adam and Eve? All the way back in Genesis chapter 3, we find them in sin. And what did Adam and Eve do about it? They literally covered themselves up. And then they literally hid. And we read that story today and so often we go oh, have a, you silly, silly man. What made you think that you could hide from God? And then nine times out of 10, we turn around and we do the exact same thing. <laughs> Am I wrong? Am I wrong? It's because we misunderstood Jesus's attitude towards sin. And the result of that misunderstanding is I'm filled only with shame. But the Bible tells us that the real issue with sin is that it's killing us. Here's how Paul put it in verse 13. He said, you were dead because of your sins. You were dead because of your sins. And now when we understand it that way, we're not filled with shame any more than the cancer patient would be trying to hide from the surgeon. When we understand that sin causes death, we don't want to hide from God. We want to run toward him. We exchange our shame for joy. And for thanksgiving spiritual circumcisions means that Jesus has cut away the part of us that is prone to sin because Jesus knows it was killing us sin was killing us but that's only part of the problem removing the sinful nature changes us it changes our nature it makes us different it makes us less likely to sin but like we already said today, it doesn't mean that I'm never going to sin. Let me tell you what I think is true about myself. You can determine for yourself if you agree or not. I think that I'm not particularly physically clumsy. I mean, I have my moments, but I don't think I'm prone to fall down. I'm fairly strong, I'm fairly healthy, I have a decent sense of balance. I'm not prone to tripping and falling but every once in a while, I stumble. Uh, it might be a shoelace. It might be an uneven part in the sidewalk. It might be an obstacle that I didn't happen to notice. It doesn't mean I'm prone to fall. It just means today I took a spill. And it's like that with sin. Even if we don't have a sinful nature, if, even if we aren't sinfully clumsy, there still needs to be a solution to account for the impact of that occasional, that every once in a while sin. Sin. If we're going to be rescued from the death that it causes, we need a better solution, and Jesus provides that solution. Yes, sin causes death, but forgiveness kills sin. Forgiveness kills sin. Here's another misconception we need to undo. Too many of us see forgiveness as a sign of weakness. We have this mistaken idea that if we forgive someone their offense... That makes us an easy target. Uh, It turns us into the world's doormat. We think that forgiveness makes us vulnerable to further harm. But that's the way of thinking that causes us to forgive begrudgingly. Maybe we know God wants us to do it, but we really aren't on board with the idea. Here's what we need to understand forgiveness isn't a weakness. That is backwards thinking. Forgiveness is a powerful, hear this, offensive weapon. It is an offensive weapon. Do we recognize that the people of God wage war with forgiveness? That's the weapon we take into battle. It is a powerful offensive weapon in the arsenal of righteousness. Forgiveness has the power to destroy the destroyer. It doesn't leave us vulnerable to further harm, it does the opposite. It ensures that we can't be harmed. It makes us victorious. Look at what Paul said about it. I'm reading from verse 13 again. Then God made you alive with Christ. How? For he forgave all your sins. The destroyer was trying to destroy you, but God brought you to victory, and what was the weapon he waged? Forgiveness. Despite the fact that sin was killing us, we were made alive by God when he forgave us because forgiveness kills sin. (laughs) I just channeled the raid commercial there, didn't I? Raid kills bugs, dead, right? That's forgiveness and sin right there. Here's the kicker. Forgiveness is not a commodity that I receive from God. I think we think of it that way sometimes, right? It's this transactional thing that hopefully we receive from God. God, you have forgiveness. I want forgiveness. So could you hand me a little of that forgiveness? Because I could really use it here. But that's not how forgiveness works. It's not a commodity to be exchanged. Forgiveness is a condition that we live in. And so we who are alive in Christ we extend forgiveness just as cheerfully as we receive it? Elsewhere in his letter to the Ephesian church, Paul would write, Be kind to each other, tenderhearted, and forgiving one another. Forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. You know, about nine and a half years ago, right after I became your pastor, one of my first big non-spiritual tasks at this church was we needed a new mortgage. The bank that we had been working with was actually closing down, our mortgage was ballooning, we needed to find a new lender, and we needed to find a new mortgage. And I can tell you that the first six or nine months of my pastorate, as wonderfully spiritually uh, uh, exhilarating as this might sound to you, was marked most, mostly by meeting with bankers and trying to find a mortgage. <laughs> And we did ultimately find a lender that was very good and and helped us out a ton. And when we went to close on the mortgage, when we went to work on all of the the, uh, details of the mortgage, I was blessed to find out that at that point in 2012, mortgage rates were at an all-time low. And so we actually found a mortgage with a rate so much lower than the one that we had been in that our monthly payment was gonna go down. Which, when you're paying the bills, is the right direction, (laughs) right? Glory hallelujah, the interest rates are so low that we're actually gonna be blessed when we make this move. You know what priority number two was with the finances? Find a vehicle for savings. We need to take the money that we do have in hand and put it in a savings account somewhere. Wouldn't it be great if we could find a savings account with really, really high interest rates so we could, you know, earn a little money with our money. Guess what? When interest rates are at an all-time low, interest rates are at an all-time low. (laughs) I wanted to find a mortgage with really, really low interest and a savings account with really, really high interest. And you can't do that because it's not a commodity to be exchanged back and forth. It's just the condition that we live in. So good news, when the mortgage interest rates are low, you don't have to pay as much. Bad news, yeah, we're not going to make as much in our savings. When the rates are low, the rates are low. It doesn't matter if the money is coming or going. It's just the state of the economy. When we're in Christ, the economy dictates that forgiveness happens. We don't get to choose to receive it at low interest, but not extend it at low interest. It's not a commodity to be negotiated. It's just the state of the spiritual economy that we live in. And thank God that's the case. Thank God that's the case. We know that sin causes death and on our own, we have no answer for that. But the grace of God says that we live in a state of forgiveness and that forgiveness has killed sin. So, our enemy is powerless. Our enemy is powerless. You know, church, sometimes I think we give the enemy too much credit. Sometimes I think we give the enemy too much credit. We imagine he has all these tools at his disposal that he can use to destroy us. We picture almost unlimited resources at his disposal. Like he has this arsenal of every spiritual weapon you could ever imagine. But that's not true. The enemy doesn't have an unlimited number of weapons. As a matter of fact, according to the scripture we're looking at today, there's only one weapon in his stockpile. There's only one weapon in his stockpile. Now, to be fair, it's it's a WMD. It's a weapon of mass destruction. And to be specific, it's a biological weapon. Did you know that? He can infect his targets with a virus that will lead to their death. And we call the virus sin. But as we've just seen, God has a plan for those who have been infected. He can cut away the part of us that has received the virus and... He can fill us with his forgiveness, which will destroy any remaining remnant of that infection. And you know what that does? That leaves Satan with nothing. That leaves Satan with nothing. He has fired his only bullet and it accomplished nothing. Verse 15 is how Paul puts it. He says, in this way, God has disarmed the spiritual rulers and authority. There ain't no war weapons. How humiliating. How humiliating. Do, do, I don't want to be too cavalier about this, but do you recognize that Satan has been talking smack about you for millennia? He has been talking smack about you. I'm, oh, that Kim Pullis. I'm going to destroy her. Mm. Like she, she's not even going to see what's coming. He has been talking heavenly smack about every one of us for millennia. And then at Calvary, he loaded his weapon fired it, and I picture like one of those where the, where the pole comes out and the little banner that says, bang, and that's all that happened. That's what happened. And God and the angels and the heavenly hosts and the saints that had gone before looked at the enemy and said, ha, ha, humiliated took the record of charges against you, nailed it to the cross, and publicly humiliated the enemy because he's got nothing. He's got nothing. He had one bullet. He fired it, and it misfired. It didn't work. Satan has only one bullet. He, He can't do all the things he's trying to tell you that he can do. You know this? Satan doesn't have the authority to kill you. He can't even cause you to do something you don't want to do. There's no such thing as, well, the devil made me do it. That's not a thing, folks. Satan can't determine your relationship with God. All he can do is try to get you to live in your sin instead of living in God's forgiveness. That's what he's got. Do you remember the story of Job? Way back, one of the most ancient stories in the entire Bible, the story of this righteous man, and Satan says, I'm going for him starts talking smack about Job again. I'm gonna get him, I'm gonna destroy him, I'm gonna do all this, And and he does. He goes after Job, he takes his household, he takes his wealth, he takes his health, he takes everything that he can think of to take from Job. Do you know what the book of Job says? At the very beginning, I love the book of Job, it's so long, and yet it tells you how it ends from the very beginning. Because chapter one, verse 22, we are told in all of this, Satan did everything. He did everything he could do in all of this, Job did not sin. Job didn't sin. Satan couldn't make him do it. Satan couldn't make him do it. There was nothing Satan could make him do about it. Church, awaken to the truth that your enemy had but one tactic. Now it's an evil tactic. Let's not minimalize it. It's an evil tactic, and he has been far too effective with it. But in Christ, he's got nothing. Yeah, he's dangerous, but he doesn't have to be. So here's what I think all of that means. I think that growing up means learning to understand the truth in what God has done for us in Jesus. And it's this realization that we have that says, in Christ, our very nature has changed. Our very nature has changed. The infected part of us that was chronically destroying us has been removed. And the forgiveness of God has obliterated any remaining residual infection. And so we celebrate that. In our culture, we have days set aside all the time that are reminders or celebrations of victories that have already been won. July 4th in our nation, right? A day that we set aside to remember the, the, the day of our declaration of independence as a nation. Veterans Day in November was originally Armistice Day. The day that it is, is because that was the day of the end of hostilities of World War I. Recent years, we've become more broadly aware of Juneteenth, a day to celebrate the freedom for the slaves, At the end of the civil war. Days that we set aside on our calendar, moments and occasions that we set aside to say, This day we will remember that victory is ours. And in Christ, we have the same thing. Satan loaded his weapon, he cocked the trigger, he cocked the what, a hammer? I I need a (laughs) hammer. Any foyer owners in the room helping with my verbiage here? Michael says, I'm good. He pulled the trigger and nothing happened. Nothing happened. And so we celebrate our, our, our victory. Jesus said, here's how I want you to do it. I want you to gather and I want you to take some bread and I want you to take some wine. And listen to the things that Jesus said about this. You've heard them again and again and again. You've heard them again and again and again. But today, remember that these are proclamations of victory. He said, I want you to take this bread, and I want you to notice that it's been broken. And when you see that broken bread, I want you to be reminded of my body, which was broken for you. I want you to be reminded that at the very moment that Satan was firing his weapon, It didn't work. I want you to see brokenness here and remember that the idea of forgiveness isn't a sign of weakness, it's a sign of victory. Jesus said, I want you to hold this bread and I want you to remember what we celebrate. Father, we thank you for the broken bread which reminds us of the broken body of your son. We thank you, Lord, for the sacrifice of Jesus by which we are saved. Lord, by which we know victory. We receive it today. Sin causes death, you say? Jesus says, let me show you what death can accomplish. So take the cup. And remember, he says, remember the celebration of my blood that was spilled as a ransom, as an emblem of forgiveness, as the means by which the infection that was destroying you was killed. This cup says the destroyer has been destroyed. And Father, we thank you for that. We receive it in Jesus' name. Church, you're different. (laughs) Can I proclaim that over you today? I've known a lot of people. You have too. You're different. You're different. There's something about you that the world can't quite put their finger on, but they see it. You're different. There's something about your nature that has been changed. You know, I've known some of you as individuals long enough to know you weren't always this way. (laughs) I mean, I'm not saying I got the dirt on you because plenty of you got the dirt on me too, right? This is mutually assured destruction right here. But I know this, you're different. You're different. And so if the enemy ever tries to whisper something into your ear, about how you probably can't really be the Christian that God wants you to be, if you're ever tempted to think about how there's some stuff that you need to fix before you can get closer to God, if there's ever a moment when you begin to question what the what the ceiling is on your spiritual potential, could you do something that feels a little silly? And it feels a little awkward, but I think is very befitting a different group of people. Could you remind yourself and remind the enemy, bro, I'm circumcised. (laughs) I'm circumcised. And you might not want to proclaim that publicly, that have some awkward moments like we need to be careful about this. But you've been here today, you know what that means. Not by a physical procedure. But there is a part of my nature that Jesus cut away.
1: There is a way that
0: I used to be because it's the way I was. It just ain't there anymore. Bro, I'm (laughs) circumcised. Could you remember that? Father, we thank you for this. Lord, if I had read that scripture on my own in a million years, I never would have come up with that metaphor. Thank you that, that, that the Apostle Paul was speaking in a way that we weren't. But Lord, your word is truth and we receive it in confidence. I thank you, Lord, that every life in this room that is submitted to Jesus represents a life that has been changed, that has been transformed. I thank you that outside the city gates there is a pile of dead tissue of what Christ has cut away. We don't need it anymore. It is a rotten abomination, it is a stench, and it is no longer part of who we are. I thank you for that. Lord, we celebrate. And we remember, we memorialize the fact that we live in an economy of low-interest forgiveness. It comes and it goes and it's exchanged freely amongst us because we are forgiven. And each time it happens, Lord, we are made stronger because we remind ourselves and we remind our spirits that forgiveness kills sin. We thank you. We receive your goodness. We receive your strength today. We receive your encouragement today. Thank you for all these things in the strong and sufficient name of Jesus our Savior. And everybody says, amen. Amen. Love you, church. Have a great Sunday afternoon. We'll see you next week.